Bible or a device in which you'll be looking at the text. We will be in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. Hebrews 5. And as you're turning or typing, um, just a little bit of recap. Hebrews is a letter written to um, an unknown group of, um, we just don't know what city they were in. We know they were a Jewish background audience who were former Jews who are now believers. Um, Most likely this is written before 70 AD and the temple was destroyed. And it's written to a group of people who are struggling. Like they are, they're, they're suffering, they're, they're struggling. Persecution is beginning to creep in. And the question is this, Hey, should we, should we stick with Jesus or should we go back to Judaism? And, And they're asking themselves some hard questions. And the author of Hebrews is simply saying this, Hey, Jesus is better And he's just been walking through saying over and over and over again, comparing Jesus to Moses or Jesus to the prophets or Jesus to angels or Jesus to the priestly system. Jesus is better. He's enough. Stay in this. Stick with this. Um, But this morning's passage is one. It's one of the reasons we preach the way we do as we work our way just chapter by chapter through books, feeling like we see the content, the context of of a book, the, the author's intent, if we're looking at it. Um, just chapter by chapter rather than picking random passages to preach each week because here's the thing I don't, I don't know what your perception sometimes uh, of me is in preparation but the passage we're going to look at this morning I mean, it worked me over this week like then I'm going man I've got to preach this and not because it's um, scandalous right there's sometimes those scandalous passages where you're like oh the, the content is hard but this week it was just like do I understand this, right? Like, because the author of Hebrews continues to bring in different elements. There's, there's warning passages. There's rebuke passages. He's dealing with a specific people in a specific situation. And so as it, it just continues to force us to go, okay, do we understand what the author of Hebrews is doing? And if we can understand that, we can begin to see the impact it's going to have in our life. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to dive in this morning. If you were with us last week, we ended in chapter or verse 10 of chapter 5 with the initial kind of foray into, hey, Jesus is our high priest. And he brings up this Old Testament character, Melchizedek, who was a, a priest and king that we find in Genesis. And he wants to dive into that deeper. And so he's going to pick that back up in chapter 7. But what he's going to have to do this morning is make an aside. And, and because we know that he knows this audience, if you even look at verse 11, um, we'll see this in just a second, that he's writing not just a generic letter. He's writing to people that he knows, and he knows their situation. He goes, hey, here's what we're talking about. But before I can go any further in describing it to you, we're going to need to talk about something else. I'm going to have to give an aside um, and a rebuke and a warning to you before we can come back to the content that we needed to get to. And so with that being said, um, let's pick up in verse 11 of Hebrews 5. About this, meaning the passage we looked at last week, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their their powers of discernment trained 
by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God, of, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. For this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right. So we need to keep in mind this morning as he is writing this letter, um, potentially to, to Jewish believers in Rome, potentially other places, we're not sure, that there are people sitting in the room, and in any time a church is gathered, we know the church is made up of those who love and trust and treasure and follow Jesus. But in any church gathering, um, not everyone's going to be a believer, right? And so we know that even this morning in this room, that not all of us are believers. And some of us know we're not believers, and some of us are fooled into thinking that we are believers and we aren't, right? And so... The, the author here is writing to an audience, some of who are believers and some who aren't. And they have, they have this threat of persecution, of leaving. And so he is wanting to rebuke and warn them. But before we jump into that portion, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Because he starts in verse 11. I have much to say to you, but it's hard to explain since some of you have become dull of hearing that maybe we just need to start here this morning. How do you approach Scripture? Right? Like, how do you as an individual approach Scripture? Because for some of us, right, I think there's a temptation to approach it like it's literature. Right? Like it's simply literature. It's just, it's just a good book. And so we approach it with this kind of analytical mind. I, I took a class actually in high school that was called Bible as Literature. And it didn't look at Scripture as sacred. It looked at it as, hey, let's just, let's just dissect it. The different genres of it. I think sometimes we can look at scripture with some indifference. Because we feel too comfortable. Too familiar. It's a little bit old hat of, yeah, yeah, I think I get the Jesus thing. And so we, we shortchange it in that regard. The issue as we read through a passage like we saw this morning. Is there some difficulty? And so are we willing to wrestle? Right? Are we willing to engage our minds? Are we willing to struggle with it? Um, or do we just kind of shrug it off and say, hey, I want the simple stuff and nothing more difficult? And so my encouragement to you this morning would be this, is don't be scared off by passages that if you read them the first time, you're like, I have no clue what that meant. 
that, that Scripture is something that we can dive into, we can wrestle with, we can struggle with, we can learn, we can grow, that there are muscles there that can be developed spiritually and intellectually. And so he begins with, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. This word dull means sluggish, lack of effort. Are we putting in effort? Or when it's not immediately to your understanding, are you like, I don't really want to. I don't really want to engage it. I don't really want to deal with it. And so maybe before we even begin this passage, maybe the Spirit just needs to convict us that we need to lean into hard things. That we need to approach Scripture as sacred, with enthusiasm, because it's God's word. It's His His breath, right, lived out for us, and that in all of it, it pertains to life and godliness. And so what he's going to tell them is this, is listen, you're hearing the word, but you're not doing anything. Look at verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. She's like, so you're hearing it, you're just not applying it, you're not doing anything with it. But if you were paying attention here, look at verse 1. We're going to see what feels like a contradiction. Verse 1. Therefore, in chapter 6, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. And he continues. So he says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. But if you look back at verse 12 of chapter 5, for by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. All right. So he's saying you need to be retaught the basic principles and you need to leave behind the elementary doctrines. So you're going, okay, wait a second. Which one is it? Are we supposed to move on or are we supposed to be retaught? And so what's happening here is that he's referring to two different things, right? And we're going to need to, to break this down a little bit. He is not saying, let's leave the gospel behind. That what Jesus has done through his life, his death, and his resurrection to save us is not sufficient or that we want to move on from it. Colossians 1 will tell us this, that it is the gospel itself that continues to bear fruit in us. Right? It's that we don't leave the gospel behind. It is not the finish line that is we believe the gospel message. Now we have heaven and we just kind of do our thing. It is the starting point of walking in godliness with Jesus. And so what he's saying in verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity Remember, this is a Jewish background audience who would have been very familiar with Judaism. And he then lists six things. And what he's doing is he's taking these six kind of basic elemental things that would have been taught in the Old Testament that that evangelists were using to be a bridge from Judaism to Christianity. It was helping them understand and to grab some handholds. And so he, he lists them. He says, listen... Um, go on to maturity in verse one, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. That's the first one of faith towards God is the second of instruction about washings. The third, the laying on of hands is the fourth. The resurrection of the dead is fifth and eternal judgment is the sixth one. And so he says, listen, you know, as former Jews, that scripture, the Old Testament, our, our Jewish faith taught us these things. And so repentance from dead works would be religion, right? It's repenting from works that would not save. And so our our dead works are sin that has separated us from God that need repentance. 
or it's religious activity. It's a sacrificial system that won't bring salvation anyway. That both of these need repentance. It's why John the Baptist, when he came, he came preaching repentance. Repent, for the kingdom is near. Like, turn from these things and turn to the one who can actually save you because your works will not save you. Religion will not save you. And so they would have known this from the Old Testament. The second is this, is have faith in God. Right, that we see that the Old Testament is a, is a book of faith as well. That Abraham was called to trust and to believe and to follow God. Right, that there was faith in that. Yet Acts 4 will tell us that there's only one name under heaven by which salvation comes. And so it's not just this generic faith in God. It is faith specifically in the fact that God has sent his son to rescue us. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that through salvation comes. And so if we follow him, if we trust him, if we treasure him, he is taking us back to the Father. And so it's not just faith in God. It is faith in Jesus specifically as sent by the Father as the Son of God. The third is this, the laying on of hands. And so in the sacrificial system, they would often, we see this in Leviticus 4 throughout um, the, the, the Pentateuch, is they would lay hands on the sacrifice before it was done. And what they're saying is, I'm identifying myself with the sacrifice. Like, I'm putting my hands on it, so now it's going to go die instead of me, but I'm, I'm knowing that its life is being taken because of my sin. So he said, like, you, you understood the laying on of hands, and now, though, we see that Jesus is our high priest, and that it was his sacrifice, right? And so we get to take hold, we get to cling to faith in Jesus, right? That, that he is our salvation, that he is the one who has restored us, right? And, and they're taking these Jewish tenets, and they're beginning to see some Christian elements to it. The fourth, washings. Um, that there were all sorts of ceremonial washings before sacrifices, before different ceremonies to be physically clean. Now listen, they understood that it did not make them spiritually pure. But we see even in Ezekiel that there was a hope for a day where it would mean something, mean something more. Listen to what, how God talks about this to his people. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. So I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all of your uncleanliness. From all of your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what he's saying is there's going to be a washing that is going to take place someday that will actually cleanse you. That will actually remove the stain and the impurity from you. And so they're hoping and longing for this day. And in the meantime, they're ceremonially washing to remind themselves, I'm not clean. Like, I need cleanliness. Spiritually. And we begin to see this then, right? In baptism, that doesn't wash us. But Jesus has washed us. Right? And it's symbolizing that we have died to ourselves and we've been buried with Christ and we are raised to walk in new life. That Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf has washed us in his blood and we are cleansed. And so we're not ceremonially washing all the time because it's through the spirit that we are reminded that we have been freed from sin. And we are pure because we have been given Jesus' perfection. The fifth is this, is resurrection. 
that God describes himself often in the Old Testament as the God of the living. Right? Kind of laying this foundation that I'm the God of the living. We see when Abraham takes Isaac and, and is willing to sacrifice him, that he's trusting that God can raise him from the dead. Why else would, would he be doing this? Or we turn to Isaiah chapter 26. And we hear the prophet say this in verse 18. Or sorry, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Right? That there were these glimmers of hope that God would be a God of resurrection. And then the sixth teaching here was that there would be eternal judgment that god would bring judgment someday and so we see and then in isaiah 33 verse 22 for the lord is our judge the lord is our lawgiver the lord is our king and he will save us and so what the church has done is they've taken these familiar tenets of judaism And they've made a bridge into Christianity. They begin to help them grasp some things and to understand some things. And they begin to walk in to see in a fuller picture and a clearer understanding of what God is doing. That those things were um, shadows. They were types of what God was going to reveal clearly in Jesus. But they're lingering there. They're lingering in the familiarity of Judaism. Of this thing that they know well, that, that, that calls out to their heart, and going, ah, but do I, do I really trust Jesus in this, or do I just keep what's familiar? So church, listen, we know this, that if you were a pagan, right, if you're an, a, an irreligious, non-religious person, living a very immoral life, and Jesus saves you, there's this like really clear break, right? You're like, the old is gone, and the new has come. But when Jesus saves out of religion... The waters can get muddy. Right? Because we're like, "Ah, I used to do some of these things. They just didn't have any meaning. Or I did them by my own strength or by my own power. Or I held them up for others to see. And yet, God is asking me to do the same things, but now like, with new meaning. Then now I don't read scripture so that I'm smarter than you, so that I can win arguments. I read it because I, I, I treasure Jesus. And yet, in both of them, I'm reading scripture. Right? I don't pray as a hypocrite or a Pharisee anymore. I pray to meet with my father, but in both of them, I was praying. I used to go to church so that I would feel better or look moral or have standing in the community. And now I go to meet with my brothers and sisters in Christ and to meet with the living God. But in both of them, I went to church. Right? And so what, what's happened is their past religious behavior and their, their understanding the clarity of what's going on in Jesus has become so intertwined that they're like, what if we just step back a little from Jesus into this place that won't get us persecuted, we won't suffer because Judaism is legally recognized? And so the author says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let us leave the bridge that got you here. Right? Like we need to leave these things behind and go on to maturity Not laying again a foundation of repentance, right? So he's saying this, you have a foundation. It is that Jesus saves. His life in place of your life. 
his death instead of your death. And then he beats sin, Satan, death, and lives today. That is the, the means of our salvation. It's the only one. And that foundation has been laid. And he's like, you're back here arguing about words and, and tying things back into to Old Testament understanding. He's like, the foundation is there. Now build on it. And that takes us back then into verse 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers. But you still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The foundation has been laid. And what we're going to build on this are the implications of the gospel. Right? If we're not careful, we can, we can be a record on repeat just saying over and over again, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, love him, trust him. Right? But the gospel goes deeper than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Because the gospel changes the way that you view money and the way that you work for it. It changes the way you view marriage. And how you interact. Right? It begins... So we, we, we can look at marriage and say, look, that it demonstrates the beauty of the gospel. Right? That, it, that we, we would value permanency there because God's love for us is permanent. Right? That it, it changes the way that we view people sinning against us. Because God's love was demonstrated for us when we were sinners. By grace, He pursued us and, and took hold of us and rescued us. Not because we were cleaned up, spiffy versions of ourselves, but we were rebels, angry at him, warring against him. And yet he saves us. And so the gospel is the fact that it saves you and that one day you get eternity. But in the meantime, you get decades to work out the implications of the gospel in every area of life. So that you have freedom from sin. So that you have healthier relationships. So that you better understand A father who has rescued you. And so what the author of Hebrews is not saying is this, that milk is bad. Milk isn't bad. Milk is the word of God. Right? And so um, we have lots of examples of this around the room. There are lots of newborns. And if you're around them when it's time to eat, they're very diligent and determined to make that happen. Right? Right? Like, they, they just make it clear. Like, Janner just starts going. And it doesn't matter which direction you turn him, his mouth is just open, and he's, like, leaning in, you know? Like, it's time to eat. And I'm going to, I'm, like, I'm going to eat. And you're not going to stop me from eating. And what I need to eat is milk. Right? And so that's what he wants. And part of the process of him growing will be him being sustained by milk for a season of his life. Until the day where he begins to take on softer foods that then lead to more solid foods that then begin to lead to steak and potatoes and vegetables and bread and these, these, these other things. And so listen, no one looks at a nine-month-old and goes, you baby, why don't you only want milk? Right? Like, you're like, that's what you should want. You're starting with the right thing. Right? But if he was ten... And he just walks around like, right, opening his mouth. Give me milk. We got a problem, right? A massive problem that you're going, why did you not deal with that like the previous nine years? Right? Like there is a process that is normal. And then at some point, it's obvious that things are wrong. 
And so he is rebuking the church and saying, there was a period where you should have been taking in milk. And then you progressed beyond it. And you're still walking around like babies. Needing this thing that is, is basic. And it wasn't that it was bad or that it wasn't sufficient. You're just supposed to move on from it. Right? It, it's the same as like we're just not mad at babies for being babies. They get to be babies. They get to sleep a lot and cry and poop right, and eat. But at some point, you need to grow up. And so we don't get to act like babies anymore. And so spiritually, he's saying, take in the word. Take in the basics of what's going on. Right? Eat on it. Be nourished by it. And then begin to grow up into it. And one of the ways that happens is verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here's what he's saying. If you're going to grow up in the milk into mature food, it's that you're taking it in, you're hearing it, and then you are acting upon it. That you're using the word to give guidance to the decisions that you're making. Right? You're using it to, to give you discernment into good and bad. Into sin and not to sin. Into relationships or not into relationships. Like, it's using the word to grow you up. To be rooted deeper into Jesus. Right? Paul says it this way. I want you to be grown up, rooted, so that you're not tossed to and fro. Right? I want you to be mature. And so that's a process. Right? He does not give a timetable. He does not say you need to be chronologically this old or you need to have this much time with Jesus. But are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you putting things into practice? And so what's happening in the room is this, that they're hearing the word of God. They're affirming the things that feel familiar to them in Judaism. And then they're not acting on anything. They're not walking in anything. And so he's like, you're still just sitting around with a bottle in your mouth. Right? And so now when circumstances have come up, tension has come, pressure has come, suffering has come, and the government's pressing down on you, and things feel a little bit uncomfortable, you're like, not sure if Jesus is enough, let's go back to what I know. He says, instead of the fact that you are rooted in the fact that others have suffered, right, and they've considered it joy, what's the difference? They've been grown up in Jesus. They have matured to trust and to understand who he is and what he's doing. The implications of the gospel. That we act upon what we're learning. Listen, he does not say that our obedience to scripture then saves us. But he's saying it is working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's, It's showing that we are believing what is being taught to us because we're acting upon it. Listen, if I tell Jude... Not to backtalk someone. And he sits and nods. Tells me okay. Gives me like all this like. He can give me a sermon on the reasons we don't do it. And all this right. And then backtalks. I don't care how much he knows about the reasons he shouldn't backtalk. If he's continuing to do it. Right. And so him moving forward. Him growing. Him maturing. Him being rooted. Is him acting on the things that he intellectually knows. But is not yet practicing. So, that's why the author will say this. I want you to leave the elementary bridge work that got you to faith. I want to reiterate to you the foundational truth that you have, the foundation that is laid. And now, church, what I want you to do is begin to build on it the implications of the gospel for all of life.
right? Like that's, that's kind of where he's going. But I told you there was a rebuke. We've seen the rebuke. There's also a warning. And if we go to verse 4, we begin to see a warning of why this matters. He says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. Right? So he's saying, listen, there are some of you who are sitting here who need to be warned that you think you have him and you don't. You are near to the things of God and you don't yet have him. Right? Because you, you can nod in agreement at some of the things that are said. Or you've mentally affirmed some of these things. And there's no fruit in your life. There's no perseverance in your life. There's no treasuring of trusting of Jesus in your life. So what he's painting here is a picture. He's like, look, people can sit under good teaching and be moved by it. And that doesn't mean they know Jesus. People can see the, the, the mighty power of God through miracles and affirm that that was supernatural and not trust and treasure Jesus. Here's the scary thing. We can actually sometimes do those things and it doesn't mean that we know Jesus. Right? This is Matthew 7, a, a passage we go back to often that says there will be a day where they will stand before Jesus and say, let us into heaven. And he'll say, I don't know you. And they're like, what do you mean you don't know us? We did prophecy and we cast out demons and look at all the religious things we did. And he'll say, but I never knew you. The point isn't the things that we do, it's do we know Jesus? Are we walking with Jesus? Are we obedient to Him? So He's saying, I'm warning you, please don't be fooled. Please don't think just because you've tasted the goodness of the Word that it means you know Him, right? Don't think that just because you're around it that you know Him. I want you to, to consider Am I trusting Jesus for my salvation? Is He sufficient? Is He enough? Jesus talks about this Himself. Right? If we look in Luke, sorry, Mark chapter 4, we have the parable of the sower. And so He, he t- tells this parable and He says, Look, um, as the word was sown, like as it was planted among the people, right? This says that some of it fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it, right? These are people who hear Jesus and they're just like not interested, done. And then he goes, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. What it looks like, I heard the word, I responded, I'm intrigued, I'm interested, right? But listen, verse 6. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. What is happening to the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to? Persecution, suffering, circumstances are coming, and they're going, do I have enough rootedness in Jesus to withstand this, or do I actually not know him at all, and so I'm going to wither and go away? He continues, other seeds fell um, among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out. And other seeds fell into good soil, and it produced grain. He says, and you who have ears, hear, like listen. What he's saying is this, is you can be initially interested in Jesus and not actually know Jesus. Right? That that this initial burst doesn't mean that he's necessarily rescued you. 
What's he said for five chapters? Perseverance is what reveals that. Do you walk with Jesus despite circumstances? Do you stay with him? Do you, do you, do you keep him? Does he have you? It can seem as though you have it, but in fact, you do not. The Jews were close, near to the things of God, but they were potentially going to miss it. So church, there's a super easy correlation here for us. In West Texas, we are near to the things of God in almost every regard. There's prayer wherever we turn. There are church people wherever you go. Right? The things of God are talked about in the public sphere still, even as it's stopping around the world. We can be near the things of God. We can have tried the church thing and not know Jesus. Right? So the warning is this. Is are you finding the gospel has implications for your life? Is fruit being produced? Because as he has rebuked them and as he has warned them, now we see his pastoral care come over them. So he begins to give a description. Verse 7. For a land that has drunk the rain... Often, that often falls on it, produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. So he's saying, if the gospel is falling on you and it's producing fruit, right? It's evident that you know him. And then he says, but, in verse 8, a land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, right? They're still around the things of God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And in its end, it is to be burned. So he's saying, others are hearing it. And fruit is not being produced. And yet they're near to the things of God. So he's, he's cautioning us. Consider your heart. Consider whether you trust and treasure Jesus. And he ends with just pastoral care and kindness. Though we speak in this way. Yet in your case, beloved. We feel sure of better things. Right? You can see I, I beat you up for a chapter. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He's saying, I'm not looking to wreck you here. I want you to have assurance and to persevere to the end. So that you may not be, look at the word, sluggish. It's where we started. Dull of hearing, sluggish. So that you may not be sluggish, but you would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. What he is not saying here is that our salvation can be lost. He's saying if you have salvation, it's yours. Why? Because you never earned it in the first place. It was a gift given by God. So it's why in John 10 he says, those who are in my hand, no one can snatch them from me. It's why in 1 Peter 1 he says, your salvation is kept by the power of God in heaven. It's why in Romans 8 he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. The salvation was given to you not because you earned it or because you could keep it. It was given as a gift and he will hold it for you. And our job is to cling and to strive and to persevere and to imitate And to be obedient, not to keep us saved, but as evidence that we have been saved. That the gift was a gift. But the warning is this, church, don't be numb. Don't be hardened. Don't be dull. Don't be be immature in this. Because you'll hear people 
be so presumptuous about the Lord and say, I want to live my life, and at the end, I'll make a quick bedside, deathbed, salvation plea. It's like, you don't, you don't know Jesus. If you want to live a carnal life that doesn't honor God, and then in the last second jump in, he's like, you, then you don't know him. You haven't been affected by him. You don't trust him. And he's saying, church, I don't want to give you false assurance that because you show up that you know him. False assurance is dangerous. Salvation, though, belongs to the Lord. Would we not be so presumptuous that we'll just do that another time? He's like, because you can become numb to it, hardened to it, and dull to it, where it no longer pricks your heart. There's a certain pride that will say, I can pull out of my nosedive whenever I want. And he's saying, I'm warning you, don't, don't bank on that. So church, last two thoughts and we'll be done. Jesus, mercifully in the Gospels, tells a, young, a man who goes, Jesus, I believe, and immediately goes, but help my unbelief. Your questions, your doubt, your unbelief, you can take them to him and say, God, give me eyes to see, give me a heart to understand, give me a mind to consider and to ponder. Right? We can ask the hard questions. We can rest and trust in him. In church, would our prayer this morning be this, Jesus, give me more of you. I need more. Like, would I not be surviving on milk, but would I be surviving on meat? And that's not a new message. That is the implications of the gospel being worked out in every area of my life. Where am I not trusting you? Where am I not depending on, upon you? Where do I need more of you? Where do I not treasure you, but I trust myself? God, give me eyes to see more of you. That I would eat fully and be satisfied in you. The author will continue to work these thoughts and ideas out chapter by chapter as we move forward and wrestle with these things. I know there's probably um, questions that are being stirred in this. There's a ton of fodder for gospel community this week. Um, but would we be willing to dig in, to rest, to wrestle, to meditate, to struggle with this passage? Um, let me pray for us. Father, you are merciful to save God, thank you that it's not by our efforts that you rescue. It's not by our ability to keep ourselves saved that we are saved. But it's by your precious gift of grace that Jesus has done what we couldn't do. He has secured what we cannot secure. And he has freely given what we don't deserve. But Father, would we look to see, do we know you? Do we trust you? Are we following you, obeying you? Do we look more like you? We're not comparing ourselves to others as to how quick that's happening, but are we growing? Are we persevering? Are we connected to the source of life? So, Father, would we take the rebuke that is needed this morning? Would we take the warning that is given this morning? But for those who trust and know you, would they raise hand in worship saying, thank you that we are secure in your hands? Father, for those who don't know you, would you call them even this morning by name? Lord, would they be reminded that it is kindness, your kindness, that leads them into repentance? That you are gracious to call them son and daughter. So, Father, would we wrestle? Would you continue to give us insight into this passage of Scripture? 
And would you be pleased with our response? In Jesus' name, amen.